Good evening. Thank you all so very much for joining us tonight. My name is Rosemary Holt, and on behalf of the Institute of Human Ecology for Human Ecology, the Catholic Information Center, and our director, Father Charles Hulos, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is with us tonight in person and online and to introduce Patrick Deneen, author of Why Liberalism Failed. Patrick holds a BA in English Literature and a PhD in Political Science from Rutgers University. He has served as speechwriter and special advisor to the director of the United States Information Agency, was assistant professor of government at Princeton University, associate professor of government at Georgetown University, and currently is associate professor of constitutional studies at Notre Dame University. In 1995, he was awarded the APSA Leo Strauss Award for Best Dissertation in Political Theory and received an honorable mention for the APSA's Best First Book Award in 2000. Patrick's teaching and writing interests focus on the history of political thought, American political thought, religion and politics, and literature and politics. He's published numerous books throughout the years on these topics, including Democratic Faith, the Odyssey of Political Theory, and Conserving America, Thoughts on Present Discontents, among many others. Tonight, Patrick will discuss his newest book, Why Liberalism Failed, and let me say the reviews are in and they are clear. Patrick's book, Why Liberalism Failed, is an essential and vital book for all those contemplating the present crisis in Western politics and the future of our social order. And with that, please join me in welcoming Patrick Denise. Thank you very much. Well, it's clear that uh, people are here tonight to see the, see the person who escaped from Georgetown and lived to tell the tale. <laughs> it's really a delight for me to actually be back at the, center, at the Catholic Information Center, uh, where I've, I've been a number of times. Mind if I put this down? This is, advertising. Uh, <laughs> I've been a number of times as a speaker. I've actually been shared the stage with my friend Chad Pecknold, who's there in the front row. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, Chad, would you like to come up, come up and share the stage with me? We, we developed a pretty good relationship with uh, uh, the center. Um, during my time at Georgetown, I ran a program there called the Tocqueville Forum on the Roots of American Democracy. I think I see a few uh, alumni of, of that program. Uh, over a number of years that we ran that. Uh, Father Arnie Panula was, uh, was a frequent uh, guest and visitor at that program, and uh, his influence, obviously, here in Washington, D.C. and in the center um, really just, I think, can't be understated, uh, um, can't be overstated. Uh, he, wonderful man. Um, I, I know everyone misses him, and uh, I just ask you to continue praying for him, and I think a man who's likely to be sainted, so let's ask him to pray for us as well. He's a wonderful man. Um, I, I suppose that you're here tonight in part because I've had a, a book come out that, uh, very much to my surprise, has been widely discussed. Uh, all those book titles that you heard that I've published before, uh, I, you know, I think I maybe six people read those, and they were they were forced to read those for my tenure review. So it's very unusual to write a book that actually people are reading and discussing uh, and coming up to you and asking for signatures uh, because they actually bought a copy, uh, which is a, a new and different thing. So I don't, assuming in part that you may uh, have encountered some of its arguments uh, either by reading it or by uh, having read about it, I don't want to spend a lot of time summarizing it tonight. I actually want to riff on it a little bit since this is, uh, I think, probably largely a Catholic audience or at least interested in Catholic things. And if you're not, 
you know, you might be interested, uh, 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 even if uh, if you're not Catholic. But just to just to summarize the basic thesis of the book, uh, in a nutshell, liberalism failed because liberalism succeeded. Uh, it has, in some senses, become itself. Now, this is not a new thesis. I ripped it off from Alexis de Tocqueville, which proves that if you rip rip off theses from somebody smart, really, really, really smart, you can maybe even write a book that sells copies. Uh, we have in evidence today a world that is oscillating between illiberal liberals and authoritarian nationalists uh, and in many ways are uh, creating each other, but all seeking to use the power of the modern state to subject the other side. A kind of condition of civil war uh, exists in our society today, and we might not think that it's violent uh, in the way in which we think of civil wars, but that's mainly because the state itself has successfully attained a monopoly of power. And so to control the state today is in a sense uh, uh, is, is in a sense to control the power and in a sense have the, the tools of violence at your disposal in a legitimate form. And so the, if this makes the control of the state the one and only prize uh, of our politics today, why everything hinges on the next election and that the state system itself, uh, in as much as it's premised upon the fundamental liberal idea that we are engaged in a war of all against all, in some ways undergirds a condition uh, in which increasingly the control of the state is the object of politics and the sole object of politics. It's been said in my book that I paint a fairly bleak picture although I was delighted that a, a review appeared today in the journal Chronicles that said that I wasn't bleak enough. It's always, it's always good to see that I'm too rosy and optimistic. But much of many of the responses to the book have noted that I don't offer a comprehensive alternative in the last chapter uh, and that I, in some ways, sort of blink a bit, uh, that I don't offer uh, a kind of blueprint for what we do next. Um, that, in fact, I suggest sort of a modest proposal of sort of building a kind of form of life, uh, a kind of uh, a more local and communal forms of life in contrast to the liberal society that we see coming fully into being. Um, and then I also suggest that we need to begin the kind of deep work of thinking our way to what's next. Um, the project that is in many ways the project that I've spent my life studying, political philosophy. You could say theology, philosophy, and all of the disciplines should be involved in this, but doing less what academics tend to do, which is to study what other people had to say and then write them as an article that three people will read, and to really think about what's next in the way that Machiavelli and Locke and Aristotle did. How do we shape and form our society? But since I'm in D.C., I know that the first question, and I'm sure one of you is waiting to throw up your hand, the first question will be, well, what do we do? Or what's the alternative? What's the policy? What, what's the better option? Many of the criticisms of my book have been that I don't end on a sufficiently political note, which might be an odd thing for somebody who's been in departments of political science or politics or government uh, for my entire academic career. But in some ways, of course, this was a, was a studied conclusion. Uh, that we should, in many ways, eschew the immediate discussion of politics, in part because that discussion necessarily, without further reflection, will necessarily take place within the liberal frame. 
and it will be defined by the liberal frame. I'm guided by an insight not unique to this thinker, but the, the late Sen Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, in, in the course of his uh, uh, life and, and thinking both as a political figure, I mean, you can't hardly think of anyone who's more political than Senator Moynihan, observed, and I quote him, the central conservative truth is that culture and not politics determines the success of society. The central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. And in a way, I think this is a kind of the world in which in some ways we live in today, that we have been in some ways, um, we've gone through a, a period in which, broadly speaking, liberalism has shaped a culture or, in fact, in many ways, eviscerated a culture uh, to the point where it's difficult even for a conservative to say, to say, this is the culture that ought to be conserved. This is the culture that we want to save. What does one do then when cultural transmission, in some ways, has ceased? So it seems to me Catholics who are interested in this preservation or cultivation of culture, um, in many ways necessarily, of course, live in a world of politics, especially if you live in D.C. Um, but to the extent that one is engaged in these kinds of debates within the world of Washington and the policy world, one almost by default has to use the liberal political mechanisms that are at one's disposal, in many ways to attempt to fight against this political form of liberalism itself. I have lots of generally friendly debates with my neighbor who lives right in back of me, Professor Rick Garnett of the uh, Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame Law School, uh, who will often tell me that while I'm out criticizing liberalism, he's fighting to use the tools of liberalism to protect the, the, the Catholic faith and other faiths. And I always tell him I appreciate it, uh, but good luck with that. Very prominent in recent times, certainly among Catholics, have been appeals to religious liberty as the tool that will allow the space for the preservation of a kind of culture and the cultivation of that good and healthy culture that Senator Moynihan points to as the essence of what it is to conserve something. What I think this aims to do is, uh, is to, um, was captured well by my uh, late friend, uh, my late friend and sparring partner, Peter Lawler of Berry College, who passed away too young uh, recently who in always a, uh, useful turns of phrase that Peter was famous for, argued that one should use libertarian means to secure non-libertarian ends, and that religious liberty was one of those um, efforts. This position, and Peter himself and Rick Garnett, reflects in many ways a, a, a continued confidence, or at least some degree of confidence, in the project that was undertaken in particular by the Jesuit priest, John Courtney Murray, who proposed a kind of detente or even a rapprochement with liberal political orders in his own development of his thinking about religious liberty. One, of course, that influenced, if it didn't completely determine, but certainly influenced the writing and the promulgation of Dignitatis Humanae, uh, written and published in 1965. Murray, in many ways, developed the view, probably quite famously in the I probably don't have to explain it to many people here, but essentially rejected what had been the 19th century church's suspicion of liberal orders and accepted the liberal premise, the claim of liberalism itself, that the state was indifferent to questions of the good. It was neutral to those questions. And that what the state ought to be understood, the liberal state ought to be understood as doing, was to establish what Murray called Articles of Peace, a way to settle potential disputes. 
He distinguished then the juridical state of liberalism, that neutral state, from the substantial forms of the good that existed in society, what we today might call civil society. The liberal state, Murray suggested, does not and ought not to seek to impose any one conception of the good, but merely to act as a good faith referee between and among actors in society. Murray suggested that not only was this the best way to proceed in a world of plural beliefs, but in fact would allow for the flourishing, not just of religious liberty, but of religion itself, would allow for the flourishing of religion, religion in particular not simply imposed by one society or imposed by the state, but now embraced as a matter of free choice, developed through the liberty and freedom of a mature people and people who would consciously come to embrace their faith. Like liberals themselves, think here perhaps of John Rawls, Murray denied that this frame constituted a kind of comprehensive doctrine. It was merely a container. And he exempted liberalism as being the one regime that was not, in the Aristotelian sense, was not a regime that shaped a people. Famously, Aristotle in the politics suggests, this is, of course, my favorite passage in the politics, politics is architectonic, that politics shapes every aspect of society. Uh, and therefore, the study of politics is essential if you want to understand things as disparate as how a, how a society engages in warfare or the economic system of a society or the family structures of a society because politics is going to influence all of those aspects of life. And yet Murray argued and claimed that liberalism was not architectonic in this sense. It didn't shape people's souls. It simply left space for the shaping of souls. He envisioned a thin juridical state containing a kind of thick and rich stew that percolated and bubbled. But the pot wasn't going to tell you what the nature of that stew should be. The state would keep peaceful equilibrium through the auspices of being a neutral referee, through being the juridical state. The scholar Michael Buddy has noted, and I quote him, Murray's theory of the state, such, it is, such as it is, can only be described as naive almost a direct transferal from civics texts to political description. And I think he's correct about this. We can point at least to two areas, and I just want to touch on these I hope, relatively briefly. The first of these would be, in the, it seems to me, in liberal theory itself. That liberal theory itself understands that human beings uh, and that liberal society have a certain kind of... Um, norm or even an end. Tocqueville recognized this in Democracy in America. In one of the more famous passages of Democracy in America, Tocqueville observes that in democratic ages, people will come to prefer equality over liberty. And this is a famous favorite passage of conservatives especially who think that Tocqueville's predicting the New Deal. But what people tend to neglect is that he opens that chapter, in fact, with the claim that Democracy, liberal democracy itself has a kind of telos, has a kind of trajectory, a final point, he says, of perfection to which it inclines. He points to a condition in which he says that the most complete form that equality can take on earth is an extreme point at which freedom and equality touch each other and intermingle. Such a condition, he 
understands as being the perfected form of both equality and liberty. Then in that condition, he goes on to say, with none differing with those like them, no one will be able to exercise a tyrannical power. Men will be perfectly free because they are equal, and they will be entirely equal because they will all be entirely free. This is the ideal toward which democratic peoples tend. That's what Tocqueville argues. In other words, liberal democracy has a telos. It has an end, and its end is to make us, in a sense, free ultimately from each other and in our freedom perfectly equal. Now, Tocqueville here doesn't talk about the theory lying behind liberal democracy, but one can see in this passage that what he describes is nothing or, or resembles nothing quite so much as the condition of human beings described in the state of nature by John Locke. In that condition, Locke, in chapter 2 of the Second Treatise of Government, Locke describes human beings in the state of nature, the state that all men are naturally in, as a state of perfect freedom in the first instance, as well as a state also of equality. Those are both quotes. Locke echoes here the base condition of humans in the state of nature described by Hobbes, with, with all of his differences from Locke, nevertheless also describes human beings as perfectly free and perfectly equal. Uh, that, uh, among other things, as, as Hobbes describes it, that they, are, uh, that they are in a condition in which they, have an, they, are, they experience an absence of external impediments. This is what freedom is. And perfect equality is the equal absence of impediments. This is the condition that Tocqueville describes as the telos toward which liberal democracy tends. Now Locke describes human beings as being in this condition, as in the state of nature, in significant part because he lives in a world in which this is actually the complete opposite of what exists in the world. People are not in a condition of freedom and equal freedom. They live in conditions in which who they are is defined by who they're born from, where they come from, what their parents do, what status or rank of society that you hold. Right? Tocqueville knows this well. His name is Alexis de Tocqueville. It means of Tocqueville, which means of the people of Tocqueville, but also the place, a very nice chateau in the western part of France. I know this too because I'm Patrick Denine of Nien. <laughs> Tocqueville understands that the, the core difference in many ways between an aristocratic society and a liberal democracy is the freedom of self-definition. And why he says the telos toward which liberal democracy tends is this form of a kind of radical equality, the freedom to define yourself. Now, we all know that even in a condition of liberal democracy, we're born to particular people, our parents presumably still. And these people constitute the first arbitrary authority over us, limiting our natural liberty uh, and limiting our natural equality among the first things that a child will say once they turn about the age of four is that I wish I had never been born and I wish I had never been born to you. That's a Lockean declaration of independence. <laughs> Such children, ourselves, are born into a world of lots of unchosen forms of identity. What language we will learn and speak in, what, we, what language we'll think in and how that will limit the shaping of our minds. The first people that will come to know uh, maybe on the block that we live on, the neighborhood that we're born into, that arbitrary place, those people who will shape our personalities for better or for ill, 
the customs and the traditions that we will adopt, like cutting down nice evergreen trees in the middle of winter for some reason, killing these poor trees to put baubles upon them. Of course, the religion in which a person will be raised and will be encouraged to believe is the true religion at the exclusion of all others. What Locke presents in the state of nature is a condition completely opposite to the experience of most humans in most times and places. As Alistair McIntyre, a colleague in the philosophy department at Notre Dame, has suggested, our actual condition is that of dependent rational animals. And he suggested that the description of human beings in the state of nature in some ways describes attempts to describe the whole of human life essentially as if all humans were always about 32 years old. That much more of our lives are lived as dependent, if not always rational animals. Perhaps my, my favorite uh, summary of the state of nature thinking is the great French philosopher, political philosopher, Bertrand de Juvenel, who described this condition, state of social contract theorists and state of nature theorists, as the views of childless men who had forgotten their own childhood. And yet, if the social contract theory and the state of nature scenario that, it, that it's premised on presents a kind of unrealistic view of human beings, human beings in some ways completely autonomous, as one point in uh, Hobbes's work, De Kiwe, on the citizen, uh, describes humans as mushrooms that pop up as if from nowhere overnight. If this view seems to be unreal and unrealistic, nevertheless, it's not because it's describing what we are or what we were, but what in many ways what we are to become. While seeming to offer a kind of abstract nature and st uh, abstract standard of nature and a kind of natural condition, what it actually offers is a kind of a kind of standard condition by which we can evaluate all potential arrangements of our lives and evaluate to what extent we have freely chosen those arrangements. And we tend to think, of course, of Locke famously as establishing the principle that political societies cannot be understood to be legitimate unless they are consented to by the governed. Famously, the Declaration articulates that view. Only through the consent of the government of the governed can the government be thought to be legitimate. But note that for Locke, this can't simply be the sum of it. And why, among other things, he has an entire chapter devoted, for example, to the question of parental power and parental authority. Because what good is it to be free politically if we're still governed in our sort of private lives? What good is it to be governed, to be, to be freely choosing in terms of our government if we can't make the essential decisions of freedom of the autonomous and free equal individual? And so among other things that Locke describes as essential is the fundamental freedom of movement. He notes, for example, that the fact that there are multiple countries, kingdoms in the world, suggests that people have always had the ability to move. Otherwise, there would only be one nation. Right? Splitting off is a fundamental Lockean idea. Protestantism is built right into it. If I don't like it, I'll move. The idea, essentially, what Locke argues in the second treatise, uh, I'm sorry, in the letter concerning toleration, of beginning the process of arguing that religion. In fact, he has a passage in which he says, it would be absurd to think that re the religion of your parents was simply passed on as an inheritance to that of one's children. Uh, that in some ways this is uh, no different than in some ways a genetic code. And of course, in one sense, he's right. You're not, you're not necessarily marked at birth as being a Catholic or a Protestant or a Jew, but you're marked pretty, pretty quickly if you're a Jew, pretty clearly and explicitly. You're also marked by baptism if you're a Catholic. But the idea that somehow 
It's a matter of indifference what particular religion your parents might have. And as if the choice were simply like the choice of going to a supermarket, might seem on its face absurd. And yet we live increasingly in a society in which it is a matter increasingly of a kind of shopping. It's described as a spiritual marketplace. And even at the most fundamental level, that, that identity that we fundamentally don't choose, and it is fundamentally biological, the identity of having a particular set of parents or in time a particular child or set of children. Locke argues that at the point at which one reaches the age of maturity for a young person, which nowadays is about 32 years old, uh, that at the point at one reaches that, that condition of what he calls nunage, he says every young person at this age effectively enters into their own state of nature, their own condition of complete equal freedom, of a kind of radical autonomy, and at that point chooses whether or not, in a sense, they will remain in the family on the terms in which the family expects. It turns the family into the kind of similar version of the state of nature with its own legitimacy based upon the consent of the governed. Now, the irony here is that the purported natural creature that is nowhere to be found in nature could be brought into being and more perfectly realized in a liberal society and through a liberal society. Natural man, as described in liberal theory, could only be brought more fully into being through the apparatus of an ever-growing state, which is required to create the conditions that make it possible for us to be these free and equal people, and through an increasingly globalized economic order. Both of these aimed at lifting any possible unchosen constraint upon our equal freedom. Natural man, then, would not be the result of nature, but through a kind of titanic architecture combining political, economic, technological, and educational forms. These are chapters in my book. All designed to realize this free and equal human being. This liberal human being then would be the creation of this comprehensive order that in its own kind of ironic way would actually leave no choice but to become the infinitely choosing being as imagined at the origins of liberalism. <coughs> so this is, this is at least you could say the political theory of liberalism and to come back to Murray, Murray suggests that this is the political system that's a that leaves as a matter of indifference the question of what the good is to those under its domain. And as Michael Buddy has suggested, this is not only naive at the level of political theory, but equally naive is his confidence of the ongoing health of civil society under this condition. As Buddy further observes, quote, no testing of reality seems to have affected Murray's assessment of American political institutions. This might be a little bit unfair because when Murray was writing and thinking, civil society seemed pretty healthy, seemed like a place that was, in fact, oriented toward uh, or allowed for the formation of the good. But looking at the evidence from civil society today, it's simply impossible to conclude that life under liberal orders might prove supportive of robust and thriving communal forms that have traditionally conveyed and through which have traditionally been um, taught robust conceptions of the good. 
by nearly every measure of what we might think of as the health of social relationships and relational forms that is available to the very crude measuring instruments of social science. American and, of course, European society is moving in exactly the direction as predicted by Tocqueville toward a society with a telos of equal and free individuals. And as envisioned by the architects of liberalism, the liberation of the self from the contingencies of place and society and religion and, yes, family. Now, here's the point where we have to throw up a lot of slides with lots of statistics to prove these things. I'm not going to subject you to all of these statistics, but if you want me to, I'm happy to do this during Q&A. But let me give you at least one, one small example of this. There's some longitudinal studies examining the likelihood or the percentages of people who will be married by the age of 36 and then by the age of 45. Now, the first of these we know up, to, up, through, the, up through the millennial generation. So the millennials we know because they're around, the, the oldest of them are around 36 now. In the silent generation, sort of say around 1965 and th- those decades, 78% would be married it's before the invention of contraception. So you, you got married. 78% by the age of 34. The boomer generation, so around the years 1985, 56% are married by the age of 36, post pill. Generation X, so say around the year 2001, 48% are married by the age of 36. And of the millennials who've reached the age of 36, so in the year 2017, 37% are married by the age of 36. I might say, of course, today people are waiting longer, it takes longer to start a career, etc. What some people have done is to sort of look prospectively at the likelihood of being married by the age of 45. Now, we know the older generations, uh, and we know that of those older generations, less than 5% of the population of the silent and boomer generation would not have been married by the age of 45. Less than 5, 4, 3, 4, 5 percent. The the, uh, the Gen X, 20% of those that at least, um, um, well, I take this back, uh, projecting forward those trends, this is not destiny, but projecting forward the same trend lines, 20% are likely to not to be ever married, by the, or at least married by the age of 45. And of the millennials, 25%, so one in five. We can look at a whole host of measures, including measures of trust, measures of... Um, uh, patriotism, measures of the likelihood of joining associations, and across the board you see these exact same trends. It's not random. These trends are the same through these generations. One of the more striking statistics I've come across recently is the decline of the presence of a confidant in one's life. Who, how many people would, not just as, as a kind of friend, but a true confidant that you could really bear your soul to, in 1980, it was three. In today, in 2018, it's less than one. So we have half a human being that we can turn to. For thinkers who are more versed in the sociological tradition, we could say this is kind of sociological measurements. And here I would point in particular to a thinker like Robert Nisbet, who I mentioned a number of times in my book. Nisbet, what Nisbet noted was liberalism told us a story that this was about the liberation of the individual in particular from the depredations of the state. That this was how individuals would free themselves from the arbitrary rule of the king. But what Nisbet noted, looking at the actual history, was that actually fundamentally, the, the state, uh, I'm sorry, the, the modern, what, what, what Nisbet noted was that the modern state 
did not arise in order to protect the individual per se, but to break down local communities, religious institutions, and families. As he stated, and I quote, if we look not at the imaginary beginnings of the never-never land of ethnological reconstruction, i.e. social contract theory, but we look instead to the historical record, what we see, he writes, is the rise and aggrandizement of political states that took place in circumstances of powerful opposition to kinship and other traditional authorities. According to Nisbet, the fundamental conflict of modernity was not the state versus the individual, but, the, but between the state and the social group, and that this end of loosening, in some ways, the ties of the social groups was achieved by means of appeal to individual liberation, thus that the individual becomes subject solely to the state. As Tocqueville understood, individualism empowers the state. His final chapter on democratic despotism is all about the subject. Democratic despotism arises not because a despot comes and imposes his will upon the people, but because liberated individuals now have nowhere else to turn for assistance but to the state. But what Tocqueville also understood, and I think what Nisbet underscores, is that the state also fosters conditions of individualism. It's a kind of mutually reinforcing cycle. And one can, one can even go so far as to say as the one dynamic of individualism strengthening the state has been especially, it seems to me, the American path. And the path of the state fostering the conditions of individualism has been especially the European path. But both, both are now converging. Now, this aim and outcome of liberal orders was described with remarkable honesty and forthrightness by my former colleague at Princeton, Stephen Macedo, a political theorist at Princeton, who wrote a 1998 article entitled Transformative Constitutionalism and the Case of Religion, Defending the Moderate Hegemony of Liberalism. There, Macedo acknowledges the basic analysis of Nisbet and also of Tocqueville in many ways, with particular reference to the liberalization of Catholicism in America. Macedo argued that liberal constitutionalism is and rightly should be, and I quote, a pervasively educational order, and that it is not neutral toward various forms of life. Among the shaping power it does and that it should employ, he argues, is to diminish, weaken, and attenuate, and even reduce, if not eliminate, non-liberal groups and entities within the liberal order. That is to say, what John Courtney Murray thought would be strengthened within the liberal order. At the most basic level, Macedo argues liberal law and liberal practice aims, and I quote again, to shape people, help to shape people to help ensure that liberal freedom is what they want. This is what Rousseau called, we will force you to be free. That liberal freedom is what you should want. That is far from being neutral or indifferent about whether liberal freedom is or is not the proper way to understand and animate human life and choices. Macedo acknowledges that the liberal order appropriately and actively seeks to make men free in accordance with a liberal understanding of freedom, the absence of any obstacles to our autonomy and free choice. To do this, it must not only order the public realm in accordance with full access to liberal rights, that of free and unencumbered choice, but he also writes, quote, it must constitute the private realm. Of central concern, then, is an area that many regard as liberalism's attitude to be that of indifferent to, to religion, 
religious belief and the ways that religious belief is shaped and guided within the private associative realm of the family and the church. Mercido argues that liberalism cannot and has not left this vital area untouched by liberalism's soul-shaping and comprehensively educative efforts, and points in particular to the success that liberalism has had in recasting Catholicism in its own image. Macedo points, among other pieces of evidence, since I'm in Washington, this seems, seems relevant, to, quote, the ritual which Catholic judges and candidates for president have had to pass through in their quest for higher office. Citing Sanford Levinson, he approvingly notes, quote, that Catholics have effectively been forced to proclaim the practical meaninglessness of their religious convictions as a condition of being allowed to serve. Amy Barrett lives right across the street from me, so you might be familiar with this particular phenomenon. Macedo suggests that such rituals of denial of relevance of, of one's belief are bound to be educative, and I quote, that's a quote, that they have a shaping power for society at large. In particular, Catholics are effectively disallowed through disapproval and dismissiveness of the liberal order from a robust opportunity to, to express the substance of Catholic beliefs and teachings, and even or to expect a receptive hearing by an order shaped by the deepest liberal assumptions. To the extent that Catholicism rejects the liberal conception of freedom and the basic anthropological assumption of radical autonomy on which it is based, Catholicism stands as a competitor that must be overcome by liberal philosophy and liberal pedagogy. Public claims of the validity of its belief, perhaps legally, but most often informally, must be disallowed or discouraged, or preferably retained simply as forms of private belief. When John F. Kennedy was running, he was called down to Texas to explain how he would rule, if he was elected president, not under the auspice of the pope, in which he then declared that he would, of course, uh, if he were called to do something in contradiction to the Constitution in accordance with his faith, he would resign. But how many other presidents were ever called to answer those questions? You can see the basic preconditions in the country. Macedo argues, among other things, that liberalism finally cannot be indifferent to the education of children, that liberalism has a civic interest in shaping properly liberal souls, ones that will ensure that it is freedom that they want, as he puts it. Thus, he says, if parents want their children always to be guided solely by sectarian religious teachings, both politics and elsewhere, then their view of good citizenship is at odds with the liberal one. And he goes on to say, we have good reason to hope that there will be fewer families raising such children in the future. Far from offering then a level playing field or a neutral realm in which one can pursue one's own conception of the good, Macedo forthrightly acknowledges that liberalism actively seeks to advance a view of freedom that is distinct and in many ways opposite to the Catholic understanding of freedom. With refreshing, with refreshing honesty, Macedo acknowledges that liberalism seeks to be hegemonic, forcing, among other things, he says, quote, a certain religious homogeneity that finally accords with the definition of freedom at the heart of liberalism. About 35 years ago, the emeritus professor of theology at Catholic University, Joseph Kamanchak, wrote in an article that he, like John Courtney Murray, believed that a distinction could be sustained between liberal political structures, which the church can accept, and liberal ideology, which it must repudiate. Like Murray, he expressed the confidence in the capacity of liberal constitutional government, to, as he wrote, to, cre to create conditions favorable for the fostering of religious life. 
Yet does ultimately this confidence in the formal juridical set of arrangements suffice? While we are not thankfully in the condition or situation in which the U.S. Secretary of Education is calling for the mandatory state education of all children over the age of two, which was recently proposed in France, nevertheless, can parents have confidence in this formal juridical right that is sufficient to ensure generational conveyance of their faith? Or does Stephen Macedo, who I think expresses in many ways a fundamental liberal vision, that the moderate hegemony of liberalism will result in fewer families seeking to shape the understanding of their children seem to be increasingly the case. Here again, I might look and point to a remarkable amount of data that suggests that in many ways, Macedo's arguments, and you could say more deeply, liberalism, the shaping force of liberalism is working. When John Locke suggests that the matter of one's religion should be in some ways left up to the choice of the individual as if one were in the state of nature, What that suggests is that when one goes into the state of nature, if one were truly free from the shaping power of one's parents or one's families or one's community, it would be almost as if it were a coin flip, whether one were to remain in one's religious tradition or not. You would be in a condition of total freedom, and in that condition, why should you prefer the religion you've been raised in? Why should you prefer that particular culture you've been raised in? Why should you prefer that tradition? Today, it is more and more the case in more and more religious traditions that it is effectively a coin flip, not only whether one will remain in any religious tradition or a particular religious tradition, but any religious tradition. Catholics are roughly holding on to about 50% of their young people today, a coin flip. But of that nearly 50% who end up leaving the Catholic faith, half of those will be completely religiously unaffiliated, so roughly 25%. And those who stay in the Catholic tradition will end up, at least according to my colleague Christian Smith, being more adherents to moral therapeutic deism than a recognizably Catholic religion. All this is to say when I'm asked the question, what's your proposal? What are we going to do? I'm left to say the proposal that what we should seek is religious liberty or academic freedom or any of the rights, the tools that were given under the liberal order seem to me to be deeply insufficient. And so I don't want to start at the level of politics. That's why at the end of the book I suggest the first thing that we need to do in many ways is to begin to consciously shape and form communities that understand that we are not in a neutral order, that we are in a regime in the Aristotelian sense, a regime that shapes, shapes deeply the souls of the people under its domain and under its dominion. And so in the first sense is that just in many ways my book attempted to be a kind of call to an awareness or a consciousness of the nature of this order. And the call, I think, that in particular strikes me as necessary for Catholics to reflect upon of the need increasingly to think of ourselves as, or to begin thinking of the ways in which we have to cultivate what in the book I call a counter-anti-culture. Not a counter-culture, because we don't have a culture. A counter-anti-culture. But if I were to move into the realm of political theory, and I'll end here, I would move toward at least suggesting that in the first instance we need in some ways to reorder our understanding of the political order itself, say broadly speaking the state. The state in many ways today seeks to be the defining comprehensive order of our lives. If we think about it, if you want to object to the, the way in which the state might be treating one's religious tradition, HHS mandate, for example, what do you do 
you don't go to the Vatican, you go to the Supreme Court. The most comprehensive order, then, in the liberal regime is the state itself. It seems to me at least two things we should begin thinking about, and these are, of course, not new. Um, here I could call up my friend Chad Pecknell to help me elucidate Augustinian themes, but in the first, the recollection and indeed the insistence that the transcendent the transcendent and the divine orders all human cities, that all human cities are contained within something that transcends any particular human city, that a horizon exists beyond the state itself and that the state is subordinate to that more comprehensive order. And today, in a world in which we see the movement toward globalization, this is simply the effort, in some ways, to claim by liberalism that this will be the truly comprehensive order because it will define the entire world. The danger today is that this comprehensiveness will blot out the vision of the stars that transcend this world. But at the same time, we need to reconceive the essential necessity of institutions below the state, not simply civil society, not simply voluntary organizations, not Robert Putnam's Let's Join a Bowling League, but what uh, earlier thinkers talked about as a kind of true pluralism, what the British thinker Figgis called community communitas communitatum, the state as a community of communities, as composed of communities that were, in a sense, almost more essential to one's self-definition than the state itself, and that this is what composed the state and not simply the relationship of individuals to the center in that Hobbesian or Lockean understanding. As described by, I think quite nicely, by the 13th century English legal philosopher Henry de Bracton, from a kind of theological recognition uh, flowed, flowed a, a, um, a kind of set of concrete political arrangements. As he described, the king has a superior, namely God. Likewise, the law through which he was made king. Likewise, his curia, that is his earls and his barons, since the earls, comites, are also called for being associates of the king, for he who has an associate has a master. And so if the king should be without a bridle that is without law, they should put a bridle upon him. Those lower orders in society should put a bridle upon him, lest they themselves, along with him, be without a bridle. That it's these orders of society, below and transcending above, that are the true limits of the state. It's not the balance of powers. It's not the separation of powers. It's not that you have a House of Representatives and a Senate. It's not even the consent of the people that ultimately limits the political power. It's something above and beyond the state and something quite robust below the state that ultimately is the limit and bridle upon the political power that I think today we see so expansively transforming every aspect of our lives and human nature, even possibly human nature itself. So my book is not, doesn't have a prescription at the end. I'm sorry all you D.C. people who are looking for the policy set of recommendations. What it really attempts to be, and I hope that it's uh, uh, at least partially successful in being, is a call to an awakening that we can't assume a kind of culture and a civilization that will support an understanding of freedom that I think lies more deeply at the heart, certainly, of my tradition and I assume your tradition, the freedom of excellence as opposed to the freedom simply to do as one likes. With that, let me conclude, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Patrick Deneen of Deneen.
Um, we do have time for a few questions, so if you just raise your hand, I'll hand you the mic. Hi, Professor. Thank you very much. Um, uh, had a, uh, a question uh, sort of keying off of what you said at the end. I mean, is, is one possible way to link local communities to the state and to provide sort of a philosophical alternative to Lockean liberalism, to sort of rediscover sort of the strain of classical republicanism in terms of the American experiment, right? Sort of conceptualizing it as, you know, the republic depending upon a virtuous citizenry and local communities and religious organizations and the family being sort of incubators of virtuous citizens who can then govern according to the common good as opposed to just in terms of whatever will uh, further uh, the, the autonomous self. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a great question. The question of uh, whether in some ways a classical Republican tradition uh, isn't in some ways uh, a resource for, for our time. I, I, I actually think it is. I think that's the tradition that in many ways Tocqueville is seeing when he's traveling in America in the 1830s. Uh, it's striking when you read uh, Democracy in America in the early chapters. He speaks of the ways in which the uh, political communities, the township communities, are so invested in uh, the kind of active daily form of self-rule, they don't care at all what's going on in Washington, D.C. In fact, they regard it as largely irrelevant to their lives. Now, of course, this is a different time and a different place, but he also has the suggestion that uh, uh, at one point that if one were to take away their capacity to exercise their public voice, it would be as if you were taking away half their lives, which I think is a striking, uh, a striking term. Um, that one of the things that seems to me that, that I derive from my reading of Tocqueville is that, in many ways, um, Tocqueville recognized that America had an official philosophy, and he regarded that philosophy as the philosophy of liberalism. Uh, and then they had a practice. And this practice, I think, does link itself very deeply to this longstanding classical Republican tradition. This is a tradition that is refracted through Christianity, and he sees a deep link. Right? He says the origins of democracy in America are not Locke, it's not the Declaration, it's the Puritans. It's a deep link through, in and through Christianity. Uh, but what he recognizes is that there's a kind of disconnect between the official philosophy, which he says is individualistic and materialistic and is oriented toward private things, and a kind of a, a form of restlessness that's oriented toward the world and not toward ultimately the divine in some ways. Uh, and that the differentiation between sort of the official philosophy in America and its practice would ultimately come into conflict. At one point, one of my favorite lines in Democracy in America, he says, you, run, you always hear Americans justifying everything they do in terms of self-interest. Right? Even when they're acting altruistically, they justify what they do in terms of self-interest. And then he says, they do, more, they do more honor to their philosophy than to themselves. But what he worries about is that over time, people will begin to conform their actions to how they describe those actions. And I would say that this is, again, his intuition that over time, liberalism would become more fully itself, or a liberal society would become more fully liberal. So I, I, I end on a, uh, you know, maybe not enough of a pessimistic note, but sufficiently pessimistic note to say that in many ways, once you break the practice, it's like anything. How do you relearn it? How do you begin to exercise muscles that you haven't ever known how to use that have atrophied, and then do that in a situation in which to exercise those particular muscles seem almost irrelevant in the globalized modern nation state. Right? Yeah, okay, I can, go, I can go to my city hall and be local, but why would I do that? What a waste of time. I mean, who cares what's going on in South Bend, Indiana, unless our mayor runs for president? Then we'll care. Right? So it seems to me that uh, you know, we, have a deep, we have a deep problem. We have this tradition maybe somewhere in our DNA 
but now the, now the condition is one in which those particular set of muscles are not going to be entirely relevant. So it's a, it's a part of our tradition that's available to us, but it would take a very different set of conditions for it in some ways to, be, to come out of a condition of atrophy. Thank you. I wanted to give um, any individuals who didn't um, have the chance to take a seat in the chapel to ask a question. Yeah. All right, sorry. Hi, yes, <clears throat> Professor Deneen. Um it, it seems when you talk about kind of the involvement in local community um, and even with the analogy of, of the barons and the king um, and sort of the, 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 the bridal, um, that there's a bit of a almost Schmittian undertone to this, that, that Schmidt says that liberalism is an anti-politic, that it seeks to eliminate politics from the lives of, of, of the citizenry. And that's kind of what is going on here, it seems like, is that liberalism and this idea of the individual freedom is ripping away the political, which is the interrelationships between individuals. Uh, I think Schmidt was, uh, was very perceptive about the, the nature of liberalism. I mean, I, like, uh, like Marx was very perceptive about the nature of capitalism. And like Marx, and uh, in the case of Schmidt, I go with him in terms of the analysis, and I don't go with him in terms of where he wants to go with this, uh, if you know enough about Schmidt. Um, but Schmidt, no, Schmidt was very aware of a kind of, let's say that uh, liberalism in some ways proposed to replace politics with technique. Right? He was very interested in this question of politics as a kind of technology. And I think it's very, it's very apropos when we think about the rise of the modern bureaucracy. Half of you probably here work for the bureaucracy, so I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but, that, but that the bureaucracy is really the effort to sort of apply technique to political questions and political problems. I know this intimately because I'm really interested, oddly enough, in the history of my own discipline in political science. Political science is born out of the belief that we could apply to, this, to human phenomena the same kind of principles as we could apply uh, uh, to the natural world through the natural sciences. And that through the social sciences, and politics being one of them, political science being one of them, we could find sort of um, forms of um, solving certain problems that would no longer require any resort to finding out opinion or the desire or the will of the people. All of these things could be solved through a certain kind of technique. Right? Now, the fact that my colleagues couldn't even predict the last election suggests that the social sciences still have some way to go, uh, but, uh, but the, I think the hope and vision is still there, and what you're now increasingly seeing, uh, particularly in the social sciences, um, psychology uh, being uh, in particular one of them, economics as well, the effort now to combine um, physical sciences, biology, to mapping the human brain and the human mind so that we can understand how it is people make decisions and through that way understand that essentially we're not actually free creatures. Right? What we are is actually a bundle of materials uh, that are predictable like the, plant, the movement of the planets are predictable. Now what you get is this very odd world in which social science is increasingly moving toward the view that human beings essentially aren't free. And the humanities are arguing that we are nothing but freedom. We're just radical freedom. And, and if the humanities sort of press their point forward, we'll be completely liberated. So what we have in the university is a schizophrenia. Right? Which the, the natural sciences know what they're doing. And the social sciences and the humanities, which is the study of humanity, fundamentally disagree about the nature of humanity, in which I think the Catholic view would regard both of these as fundamentally false views of humanity. And that's what our universities are today. Schmidt understood that, you know, in many ways, the, 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 the effort to turn politics into technique and a kind of technology right, was at the heart and core of this, I think, mechanistic understanding of human beings. I'm going to claim friendship rights to ask a question. <laughs> sure. um, one of the criticisms that's been raised is that you're great on diagnosis but not on prognosis. I think you mentioned that early on, which is 
which is a kind of criticism that you don't have. You've got the you've got the uh, all the instruments to deconstruct liberalism, but not to give us a theory. It seems to me that there's a kind of great Aristotelian realism in your proposal that that actually we do we are interested in your work with where you're going with political theory which is which is actually to pay attention to a substantive common good at a level local enough that we know what we're talking about which is what Aristotle I think wanted us to think about with the substantive politics of the common good but it also seems to me that <coughs> along with the Aristotelian realism and humility there's also a shyness to actually state what the theory is that you might be aiming at. And I wonder if I could push you just a little bit to say, you know, aren't, especially with the rec recognition of figus, with a, mm -hmm. with a recognition of this, a pluralist theory of s the state, of community, of communities, you're actually aiming at something like a theory, right? Mm -hmm. You're actually aiming at something like a theory in which you have a concept of once you develop a retrieval of a local politics of uh, which entails a substantive recovery of the common good, you're actually building up. You're building up something like, well, once you have a collectivity of collectivities which have a concept of the common good, you're getting at something like a scalar concept mm -hmm. of the common good in which you're raising a polity up to the highest good. Right. Could you maybe just venture out theoretically for us? <laughs> Chad, I think you just did that. <laughs> That's lovely. Uh, you know, let me, actually, let me talk about this in terms of, uh, in ter with a lot of young people in the room, in terms of the university. Uh, it seems to me it's a really good analog. I mean, it's about the size, Notre Dame's about the size of a polis, in a way, right? It's 8,000, 8, 10,000 people. Uh, Catholic U is probably about roughly that size. And think about what a modern university is. A modern university is the complete opposite of a polis in this sense, or the complete opposite of the, of the common good. Maybe not CUA, but probably CUA too, that it's very difficult to achieve the common good and even something so relatively small and compact as a modern university. And why is that? Because there, it's organized around the principle that there is no common good. It's organized around the principle that basically we're all sort of engaged in fragment forms of fragment, discoveries of fragments. It's a, um, it's a division of labor in which we don't know what the whole is. I mean, I always tell my students, you know, we, we, you have all these Marxist professors who are actually secretly Smithians uh, because what they're actually engaged in is putting heads on pins without, not, without knowing what the product is that they're actually producing. And we don't actually discuss what's the product we're actually producing because we, we, we know we would not achieve agreement on that question. What should you all read? What should be the curriculum? What is the nature of education? What is a human being? What is the fulfilled human being? What's the telos of a human being? These are all questions that modern universities don't want to discuss. Instead, in part, what we do is we say the parts of our knowledge are so important that the way we're going to achieve universality is to make our part now universal. And this is why it's so important for a university professor to make sure that you have an intimate and close relationship, maybe sometimes too intimate, uh, with, with all the people in your particular tiny little part of the world so that I have to be in constant communication with all the political theorists. And you have to be in constant communication with all the theologians and the particle scientists, physicists, and so forth. But what this means is that the thing that looks universal is actually just this kind of partiality. The thing that actually makes a university a university is a community of people in the university. Right? What's the very word? University. It's something unified. It's something one. 
There's nothing less parochial than a university that's composed of people who are talking with each other from all their various disciplinary perspectives about the nature of the good and what it is that we're doing here. And I can learn a lot from these discussions with my historian friends and my philosopher friends and my architecture friends. But the nature of the modern university is one of division. And this is why I actually think that, in a way, to think about this more local understanding, everyone, that, or at least many of the reactions, want to say, oh, that's so parochial and that's so limited. But in fact, what I want to say is that universality in some ways can only be achieved through these kinds of particular forms of relationships. In particular, the variety of human types that you find in any particular place, a university being one of them, and perhaps, perhaps a kind of ideal form of that, and through the interaction of people on a campus like that to achieve a kind of universality. And the interesting thing is, is that you can get a lot of different university types and understandings in such a world. It can be really quite diverse. In such a, in such a setting, you're going to have a, a kind of explosion of different kinds of institutions. What do we have today? A complete educational monoculture that talks constantly about diversity, but which is incredibly homogenous. Right? It's exact, every institution wants to be exactly the same. Right? So it strikes me that this idea of a kind of a pluralism that's organized around the cons- principle or conception of the good is actually one that, A, is actually supportive of human plurality and pluralism, but because of this effort to evoke and to orient oneself to the good, that the kinds of conversations and discussions you can have not only internal to those communities but across communities are actually really substantive. Right? Nothing would be better than for you know, a Catholic Notre Dame and a Protestant Wheaton uh, to you know, have some serious discussions about theology right? rather, than, rather than interreligious dialogue. So, I, so it strikes me that uh, you know, what you describe is in many ways uh, really the kind of the tentative steps that I take toward the end of the book. But obviously also what I, why I want to end the book the way that I did was also to understand that we have gotten to where we are after a kind of 500-year project. And in many ways, it seems to be coming fully into focus now taken that long, it's going to take us quite a while to both act and to think our way beyond this. And I, so I, my conclusion is in part an effort to urge a certain amount of caution, because I'm very cautious of the revolutionary impulse, let's say. Uh, um, I'm enough of a Burkean Tocquevillian to say um, we are where we are. Uh, but to urge, A, caution, but B, a kind of adventurousness, especially among young people who have no future in the academy, but those of you who might wish to take on the adventure of political theory, we actually need political theorists and political philosophers today. Not academics, but real political philosophers. Uh, And it's an exciting time, it seems to me, to think about what's next, because I don't think we have reached the end of history. I don't think we ever do until we're at the end of history. So thank you for your suggestion. Um, That's all the time we have for questions. Uh, Please, a big round of applause for Patrick Sidney.